Hey there, Land Trust listeners, and welcome to the podcast, Learning the Land. I'm your host, Laura Danelle Schickman, Development and Communications Director for the Land Trust of Santa Cruz County. Today, we're getting back in the saddle to learn more about a topic near and dear to my heart, conservation grazing. To help us learn more about this fascinating topic is rangeland scientist, Dr. Larry Ford. Dr. Ford is an expert in the ecology and management of conservation lands, including rangeland livestock management and infrastructure requirements, with 37 years experience in professional consulting, research, and education. In addition to his private consulting practice, he is a research associate in the Department of Environmental Studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He has a long history of pro bono service to professional, nonprofit conservation, and conservation policy organizations. Larry, thank you so much for joining us today. And um, before we dive in, I'm hoping you can share with our listeners a little bit more about how you came to be a rangeland scientist. Great. Thanks for inviting me. This this is fun. And I think it's also uh, a valuable thing that I can do, you know, to help the, your listeners. Um, so... It's for me. It's uh, it started when I was a boy. I lived near what we used to call the cow pasture, and that meant uh, this was up in the East Bay. And my friends and I would crawl through the fence, and we would we didn't chase cows. The cows often chased us, but we were looking for snakes and bugs and digging and running. You know. And um, so I was always interested in rangelands although I didn't know that I mean didn't use that term and then my first job in college was to be a real cowboy I I worked on a ranch in Carmel Valley um, for one summer and learned some of the things like um, cattle die um, deer get shot all these things get slaughtered and it's a lot of hard work and that most of a cowboy's job is keeping the fences up and so most of my job was, you know, digging fence post holes and putting the posts in and stringing the wire and all that. So uh, later, um, I was headed in other directions and I got a phone call. I was in Alaska and I got a phone call from my favorite professor at UC Santa Cruz asking me to come back and work for him, which I did for seven or eight years. And we, we taught natural history. So this was much broader, but it was all about, you know, what are the plants and animals, how do ecosystems work, um, the fundamentals of ecology, like niches and hydrology and things like that. And then uh, he sort of kicked me out of the nest and said I needed to go to grad school. So, so I did, and I was really interested in grassland, so I found the, the top academic that I could find, um, this... Professor Jim Bartholomew at UC Berkeley, and with the help of these folks at UCSC, their recommendations, I got in with a fellowship and all these things, and I and I ended up loving it so much that I stayed for a PhD, and so I became a bona fide rangeland scientist. But I still had this kind of broader view, so I did two postdocs, and the first one was. Um, in Washington, D.C., where I was a senior science advisor um, in the Bush and then the Clinton administration. And I I discovered after three years that I really was not suited to be a diplomat because 
you can't explain something. You just have to talk the party line. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're, you have to lie, but you, you can't really tell the story. So, so I left there and I, I tried running a research program. That didn't work. And then um, my major professor at Berkeley said, Larry, come back to California. You can teach here at Berkeley for a while and then you'll become a consultant. And so that's what I did, and I, it was the smartest move I ever made. And um, I've been a consultant now for over 25 years, I think 27, something like that. And uh, I love it. I love the, the applied part of it. I love serving agencies like the Land Trust of Santa Cruz and Santa Cruz County and others, you know, state parks, um, uh, others, you know, open space districts and things like that, because they really need help. And um, I, as you know, because you interviewed um, Matthew Timmer, you know, um, I get to interact with people like him who ask me these great questions all the time, some of which I can't answer. And so then I have to try to figure it out. And so I really like working with Matthew and Tracy now the same way. And um, so I made the right choice, and I'm, I'm headed towards retirement in, in another six months. And uh, so my young number one assistant is going to take over, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep, uh, I'm going to still work about 20% of the time for as, as long as I'm able. So here I am as a, as a range scientist consulting. That is so awesome. So one question I have is how many consultants are there like you? Well, in California, there are um, something like 75 or 80 people who have this state license that I have. And, but only, only seven or eight, maybe up to 10 now, um, actually practice as a consultant. Most of the others are in agencies, like University of California Co-op Extension is a big one, and some of the other agencies have licensed people. And then there's a bunch of retired people who do things like um, expert witnesses for legal cases, things like accusations of, of uh, overgrazing, but more, more commonly, a cow got out and some poor person in a car got injured because they hit the cow in the middle of the night. You know, that kind of stuff. So um, so anyway, those are the numbers. Is that an adequate amount? It seems like not a lot. No. Okay. It's not an adequate amount. And so I've been working on this with some of my other colleagues for about, oh, 15 years. We've been trying to promote the profession at the level of universities because that's where the schools used to be, but they're, you know, the programs are getting cut, just like a lot of other natural science programs are, in favor of molecular biology, genetics, things like that, that are more profitable and where there are more donors. And so we're, uh, interestingly, we're making some progress on that. Uh, Cal Poly's growing their program. Humboldt just became a, a, a poly, so now it's Cal Poly Humboldt. And they have a good range and soils program. And a lot of students produce from both of those programs. Chico has a not a full-on department, but they have a program. So that's all good. Davis has graduate students. 
um, but not a program. Berkeley has a program, but the the lead professor there, who was my major professor at Bartolome, is uh, retired now, and it's unclear whether you know they're going to really be able to serve this. You know, he 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 and one other professor would produce, I think, uh, five or six graduate students every year, and I I don't know whether they're going to be able to keep doing that. But the other problem is that a lot of people who graduate with a degree like that don't decide to go into it as a profession, and then they they also don't um, try to get the license, and so we lose track of them. Okay. So I think this is not uncommon, but uh, we have the other front of our battle is to get the agencies to recognize that they need to have people who are licensed, not necessarily just for the legal purposes, but for the expertise. So what's what's happening is that there are now more, there's more demand, but less supply of the of the graduates. So we succeeded, you know, maybe too fast. Where are the graduates heading if not into this line of work? Well, um, that's that's a really good question. Um, some of them just go into the broader field of natural resources, um, not the science part, but the management. So a lot of them are in state parks, forest service, um, some of the other federal agencies. So they're not doing research or consulting, and they don't really recognize that they need to have the license, um, probably because they're working on everything, you know, all, all the issues of running a park, for example, not just the grazing management. And uh, others just go back into their former lives, you know, um, working f- for some agency, Army Corps of Engineers, um, various things. And it's uh, it's been hard for us to keep track of them, so I don't I don't really know. Um, backtracking a little bit, yeah. let's cover what exactly is rangeland science, and and what problem is it solving as an academic field, and why would people study it? Good, yeah. Well, first let me tell you a little anecdote that I find really fascinating. Um, in the last ten years, more and more rangeland science professionals have been coming along, including from the program I did at Berkeley, who are women and they're vegetarians. And that's like, wait a minute, that's not what we think of as cowboys. And, you know, no, we want tri-tips on a, on a grill, you know. <laughs> so um, a lot of those folks are interested in grasslands. So I often use that term rather than rangelands because Rangelands often connotes for people who, you know, who aren't part of it. They think, oh, that means that you're working on livestock production. And that's fine. And that's a big part of it. But the ecology and management of grasslands is is really important because, and this is, I think, what attracts them, California's annual dominated grasslands, they're dominated by non-native species. So the structure of the ecosystem is not native, yet it supports enough endangered species to be considered a hotspot of biodiversity, equivalent to Florida, Hawaii, the tropical rainforest. And that's really hard to believe, but um, it's true. And so 
it's really exciting to people who grew up like in the program that I used to be involved in the teaching of, the natural history stuff. So when, when people get excited about watching birds and, you know, chasing around after snakes and lizards like I did as a boy and, uh, you know, the, the botany of it. Oh, man, my two um, employees, they're expert grassland botanists. And that's a big part of what we do because plants sit still and we can go out and measure them and, you know, identify them. Anyway, um, so that's just a little side story. But you asked, what is rangeland science? So first, what are rangelands? And uh, so basically the history of the term is important to understand it because we, we might be using a different term if, if it had come about you know, later. So rangelands were those lands that were not valuable enough to have forestry or industry or urban development or, um, you know, growth from urban areas like, like uh, you know, the San Francisco Bay Area. So um, breaking that down a little bit, what that really means is that in the, you know, 150 years ago, say, um, it wasn't good for anything except for livestock grazing. <laughs> and some of the lands weren't even good for that. So that's what people did who were trying to make a living off the land. Um, you know, they were either homesteaders and they would plow up some land and grow crops. So they became farmers or the land was so rough that you couldn't do any of that. And so that was rangelands. So it's often rocky, poor soil, steep slopes, um, you know, shrubby, that kind of thing. So um, to me, that's really the core of it. That's what rangelands are. It's not a perfect definition, mm -hmm. but um, it's mostly grasslands. It's some shrublands, but it's also the understory of some forests. Some, some forests, um, especially, you know, before we started suppressing all fires, there, were, there was a lot more sunlight getting to the forest floor, and so there was a lot of grass. And so those were good for grazing too. And they still are today, but uh, not as much. So, so then the second part to define for you is what is rangeland science? So what I like to think of is science really means scholarship. And that's really key. Um, some jobs say that, you know, you're a scientist of some kind. And what that really means is that you're using science. And the main tool of being a scientist is scholarship, which means you go to the library, not, not just Google searches, but you, you find legitimate, you know, verifiable sources of information. And that's usually a, a peer-reviewed publication. And so... Um, the, the ideal is that a rangeland scientist goes to the literature, uh, which is not a great term for it, but, you know, the scientific papers, and extracts from that the, the kinds of information that are needed to make management decisions. So um, there are several ways that people practice rangeland science. Um, there are agency people who apply the science, you know, they use the science to help make policy or um, uh, develop programs. And then there are researchers. And so they're actually creating the literature, the scientific literature that would be used. 
And then there are people like me, consultants who are sort of in the middle. We're, we're like the UC Co-op Extension advisors, except they're not, you know, they're not really available for consulting. So um, we try to use scholarship to uh, extract the best science that's available to address problems, to, to make management plans and things like that. So um, the result of of all this range on science is management plans. It's all about management. And that's how really range science differs from other kinds of science like astrophysics or medical science. It's about managing the land. So how can you make decisions or adjust management so that you achieve the benefits that you want, like maintain habitat for endangered species, uh, reduce fire fuels so that Fires don't go through that area. Um, uh, minimize erosion, minimize pest plants, all those kinds of things. And um, this gets back to something I said before you started the interview, which is that um, to me, the key to being a successful range scientist is helping the managers, whoever they are, whether they're ranchers or, you know, Cowboys, um, cowgirls, um, land trusts, you know, all these different agencies, helping them to make management decisions. And that's, that's very different from sort of the enjoyment, you know, like going out and watching birds and identifying plants and things. That, those are all very worthy, great pursuits, but it's trying to manage using livestock. And it's really important to recognize that, you know, a huge proportion of rangelands, especially in California, are not in private hands. They're in public hands or like the land trust. There's a conservation easement or the land trust owns it. And so it's a different kind of ownership. And um, it's uh, all, all these things come together around, you know, how do you achieve it? And like with the land trust, it's we really need and want to achieve conservation, whereas on, on the private lands, you know, maybe they don't have to. But um, given what I said earlier about how pretty much all of the annual dominated uh, grasslands of California are hotspots of biodiversity, um, one of the explanations for that is because of livestock grazing. If we, if we had not introduced livestock grazing at the time of the Spanish, you know, colonization, um, we probably would have more extinct species of grasslands than endangered. And so the reason why they're still, you know, alive, why they're still just endangered and not extinct or, or extirpated in a local area is because of livestock grazing. And so... That's the tool that we need to use, like it or not. Um, come on, let's all start liking it, you know. Um, let's, let's try to have it be grass-fed and organic and all that so that it's, you know, the products are, are better to eat. And um, so anyway, we, we would be in much worse shape if we had gotten rid of all the cows and sheep and goats and everything else that's out there. Horses. You know, horses are on a lot of rangelands, and they, they're problems. They, they have their own set of impacts. And, uh, of course, the culture and social 
environment around horses nowadays is very different. Yeah, it's, these are not working horses most of the time. So a few different questions popped in my head. Yeah. Um, one is, what is how, how often is it that a, a rancher is also the landholder? Because you're saying a lot of the land is, is not privately held or the, the rangeland. So is it more often that ranchers are leasing oh, yeah. land rather than owning or? Right. I, I wish I had a grasp on the exact numbers, um, but I don't. It's um, more and more the, the lands are going out of private ownership because it's too expensive and also because they're so valuable. So um, when, when uh, a developer gets a hold of these ranches by paying off the original owner, you know, um, then uh, the land trust has to come in and pay even more, you know, to protect it. And that's happening more and more, you know, on, as we move out from the center of urban areas. Um, another tangent. It um, is becoming more and more common and that, that the rancher who wants to be a rancher, who... Um, you know, can afford to be a rancher, you know, has the family support, whatever, that that their main uh, land base is on public lands. And if you look at the San Francisco Bay Area as an example, um, it's vital. Um, so all the ranchers I talk to, they're, they're struggling. The, the profit margin is about, on average, around 2%, maybe 3%, which... You know, most people would say, that's not enough. I'm not going to put my money invested in, in grazing management. And that The way it works for most ranchers is that four out of five of the years, it's actually a loss. And it's only one out of five years that it's a profit. And so, and they, most of them get paid only about once a year when they sell off, you know, some of the calves. And um, so they have to make it for an entire year, sometimes at a loss. So... In the San Francisco Bay Area, most of these professional ranchers, who some of whom you, I'm sure you know, um, some of them are grazing on land trust lands or or want to. They have day jobs, so really they're they're like artists, you know, they're like um, you know performers or comedians or you know painters. They're not doing that as their day job. I'm saying they're like yeah. those. They deserve our admiration because they're the ones who are maintaining the biodiversity, the endangered species on these lands that we love so much. And you drive around the San Francisco Bay Area, Silicon Valley, and even you know around here, and you look up and you see the Greenbelt. Well, that was because of a bunch of really smart, forward-thinking conservationists you know, back in the 60s started to create these ways to save those lands, but they need to be managed. If those lands weren't managed, they get overrun with brush and then trees, and especially near the coast. And so that's, for example, what happened um, with the Mid-Peninsula Open Space District. They were getting rid of the cows and they were taking out all the infrastructure. Santa Clara County Parks did the same took out this really valuable infrastructure because they thought, oh, it's better to not have any management, especially not grazing. And now it's the complete reverse. You know, they talk to people like me and help us, you know, how can we figure out how to bring grazing back? 
Well, the first thing you're going to have to do is put in the right kind of infrastructure, which is very expensive. Um, when you say infrastructure, do you mean like fencing and okay. water troughs, water tanks, uh, wells, solar systems to pump that water out of the well? Um, uh, if you're diverting from a creek or from a pond, you have to maintain you know that diversion in that pond. And then there's all the other infrastructure like if you're going to have cows, you've got to have a pretty good corral system, it, whether it be permanent or temporary. And then you've got to have a place where you can have the veterinarian come in and, and treat all the cows. And of course, they do other really awful stuff, you know, to the male calves. But anyway, um, that's all, you know, to produce beef. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a, a lot of dairy, but... Um, Dairy grazing is much different, and it's not usually on rangelands. It's usually on uh, pastures, which are really more like farms. Yeah, so more and more of these ranchers, especially the younger ones, they are totally interested in biodiversity. They want to be well-received by the community, by the public. They want to have recreationists come in and ask them questions, you know, like, why do you do that, you know? Those sorts of things, you know. Um, and uh, because it leads to them having a good reputation and feeling good, and they also get to, you know, some some of them dress up a little bit, you know, like cowboys, and they get into that, but that's fine. Yeah, well, it seems such a wonderful way to reintegrate everyone back into one community. I, I think you're really, you're really right on there. Um, so this is an excellent segue into my next question, which is there are a lot of discussions around managed landscapes um, and grazing certainly seems to be a critical part of that as you've, as you've articulated. Uh, so what does it mean exactly to manage the landscape? And you kind of touched on this a little bit already. And, and how does the grazing factor in? Right. Good. So these are the kinds of questions that Matthew Timmer and I discuss and more and more Tracy um, and I discussed, but it's so grazing is the primary tool. It's both already available, but it's also the most flexible. Let me give you an example. Um, in Santa Cruz, there's this endangered plant called the Santa Cruz tar plant. And originally, all these botanists and other conservation minded people you know, recognize that, oh my gosh, you know, these are endangered. We got to do something about it. And so um, in this one case over at, um, I can't remember the name of the land. It's um, over by the Ott Harbor. Um, Arana Gulch. Arana Gulch. Thank you. Anyway, they didn't have cattle there and they knew they needed to. So they, they got a bunch of volunteers to come out with weed whackers and rakes and things to try to simulate grazing and um it didn't work very well there but um now they have cattle there and that's also not bringing back the tar plant the way it was hoped but anyway um that's um that's an example of how um it's an extreme example of how people recognize that cattle grazing in particular was really valuable. Now, sheep and goat grazing are, have another purpose, usually for targeted grazing on some specific problem areas like 
that cattle can't get in there or um, it's a bunch of weeds and goats will eat basically any anything. And so those are different, but we don't use goats and sheep uh, at least most of the time we don't for general grazing of uh, wide open range lands. Now you go over to the Central Valley and there are a lot more goat operators that are, that are doing that and they're getting paid. Well, I mean, they're, they're paying, a, actually they are paying the landowner to graze. But over here, close to the coast, it's really the opposite. When goats or sheep are needed, um, they have to be paid. And it's very expensive, sometimes uh, up to a couple hundred, I mean, a couple thousand dollars an acre per treatment. So um, that's like to reduce weeds and that sort of thing. But for, for the long term, meaning a place where the grasses are growing, like around here for six months out of the year, you need something like cattle. Mm-hmm. Also, cattle don't need to have a, a herder there all the time. Whereas you can't leave sheep and goats out there because they'll get killed by coyotes or mountain lions. And so you have to have a paid employee out there 24 hours a day. And that's that's very different. Cattle can fend off bears, mountain lions, all that. And um, so um, <clears throat> it's, a, it's the most feasible and valuable tool that we have for California's annual dominated grasslands. So science comes in here in trying to... <clears throat> integrate this management tool into the whole property. And as we were suggesting before, a lot of these lands are now owned by either a public agency or there's a conservation easement or something. And so a lot of times you have to allow recreation. And sometimes it's not just people out hiking and looking for wildflowers. Sometimes it's mountain bikes. Sometimes it's motorized vehicles. Um, and there's a lot of pressure all the time to increase bikes, you know, mountain biking. And, and, you know, soon it'll be these motorized, you know, electric bikes. They're going to want to get out there, too. And um, so the ch- it's really a challenge to figure out how to integrate all these different things. Um, you know, the, the aesthetics of it, um, uh, the different kinds of recreational use, um, keeping the watershed working so that you're getting clean water off of it, keeping the pest plants down so that they don't move off into somebody else's property. Um, And now one of the biggest challenges that has emerged is the fire fuels. How do grazed rangelands contribute to lowering the fire fuel loads on our entire state, you know, on all the landscapes, so that we don't have these catastrophic fires like, you know, we're starting to have. Right. You know, 50,000 acres, 0% contained. Oh, my God. And the Paradise Fire. Um, Santa Cruz County is totally vulnerable to this kind of thing. The, you know, lightning storm comes in, ignites like the CZU fire. 20 different ignitions occurred. Four or five of them stayed and coalesced into this major fire. And... Um, so the challenge to me is to try to provide some science-based guidance for how to use grazing. So grazing can be used at, at 
different seasons of the year. <clears throat> it can be used um, <clears throat> at greater or lesser intensities, meaning how many animals in one place at one time. It's um, uh, all, all those kinds of things that that suggests. And so um, I've been applying my principle, which is to, you know, rather than trying to get people to adopt some kind of a hip new practice, to instead help them to, to do it the way they want to, you know, whether it be seasonal grazing or cow-calves, you know, year-round, that kind of thing, how to use those practices that they're already doing to achieve the conservation goals um, and make sure that the grazing operation is sustainable because you've got to add sustainability to this equation. If, if, if it's not sustainable, then there are no more cows to use. And if it's the most important tool we have, then it's got to be, it's got to work. It's got to be profitable, at least profitable enough. So, so those are the kinds of things that I work on. So, um, I usually try to, when I come into a property like I did for Glenwood and we're working on it for Rocks Ranch, for, for the Land Trust, and, um, you know, many other places where I've worked, start out by trying to figure out, okay, so what is on the land? What special resources are there? And special means endangered species, but also um, pest plants, um, eroded areas, uh, water quality problems. These are all special management. They, they require special management. So I'm trying to devise the special management to, to fit into the ecosystem that's there. Um, on both Glenwood and Rocks Ranch, for example, there's is already or there's going to be a lot of recreational use. So how do you minimize conflicts? Um, the general public is still really afraid of livestock. Um, they, for example, they sometimes think they're being charged or chased or something when in fact um, they're just coming over thinking, do you have anything for me to eat? And uh, no, oh, okay, so I'll just stand here until you pull that out of your pack and give me something. And um, I was talking that cows don't really do that, but when you look at them, that's pretty much all they're thinking of is eat. And then, uh, and then sometimes there's a calf involved, and the the mother cow will try to intervene if they think you're, you know, a threat to the calf. But um, so I try to figure those things out, and and I've come up with a a concept that. Matt Timmer and I have discussed a lot and that and that I think works well, which is to define the special management areas on the land. So you've got endangered species. Well, where are they? And then what do they need? Well, um, maybe we could optimize conditions for this special species, the endangered species. And then other places that don't have the endangered species, we don't have to make it quite so optimal. And then we also try to have uh, what I call flexible use fields. Mm -hmm. So there's habitat fields and then flexible use fields, which means, you know, you can adjust things. And it, What's the benefit of having a flexible use field? Yeah, that's so important. If, if you have any ranch that has a border around it, then the cattle operator or the sheep or goat operator, they're all going to be looking around thinking, hmm, how long is this going to last? You know, how long is the forage going to last? 
And what if it's a bad year, if it's a low production year, we just don't get the rains, then, uh-oh, what are we going to do? Where are we going to put those cows or the other kind of livestock? And so a flexible use field would, would be a place where you could take them off from the special management areas because special management, we want to optimize and get, you know, get the height or the mass of the grasses down to just right so that, I mean, take, take, um, the Ohlone tiger beetle at Glenwood. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, whoa, they really respond to the conditions of that grassland. And Matthew goes out there every year and several times a year and he's counting them. And we can now see that the population curves respond to the previous weather and, you know, other conditions. And so, you know, uh, he reports that to me. We talk about it, you know, what happened this year. And then we, I, I've been, you know, guiding the grazing management at Glenwood for over 10 years. I've, 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 I think it's like 13 or something. But anyway, um, I think we figured it out. And so we have these gates. We have a fence around the, the beetle pasture, and we we will either open the gates or close the gates. So if we want all the animals in there to, like, you know, hurry up and get this grazed because the grass is growing fast, put them all in there, close the gate, and then make sure there's plenty of water and that they're okay. And then at some point later, it's like, okay, conditions are looking good. The grass isn't growing so fast, so we'll just open the gates and let them grow, let them graze with the other pastures so the cows can move around. And then at other times, like uh, I think it was this last June, we decided, okay, the beetle pasture looks good. It's not going to grow anymore because the growing season is over. So let's close it off and lock the gates. So we did that. And so flexible just means that you have more leeway. It can be either graze too much or too little, and it's okay. And um, there's a, a related concept, which is, which is a sacrifice field. So we haven't gotten into this yet, but there's a lot of emerging science about climate change and extreme weather. And so the way that applies to rangelands is how do we deal with that, especially if we're going to have more extreme events. And so one of the, one of the problems is, uh, like we're in a drought year, but on the coast, it's, it's not really affecting us. It's in terms of rangeland issues. And so, but if it was, or if there was the opposite, um, or if a fire burned through and, you know, wiped out all the forage, where are we going to put the cows? Well, you can't just take them away and put them on a shelf someplace. You have to have somewhere. So the extreme case of a flexible use field is a sacrifice field where we could say, okay, there's a flood coming, you know, you know, look upstream or uh, we're expecting this gigantic storm to come in. So where can we put the cows that, so that they'll be safe, even if they cause some damage? Not super bad damage, but if, if we choose the right place for a sacrifice field, should be all right. And that has happened, I think, twice in my history with Glenwood. And um, so it's this sort of three categories of, of what the fields 
are that's based on what exists and what the conservation concerns are. And then, you know, of course, there are these sort of universal concerns like reducing fuels and um, reducing pest plants, and those can be in any kind of field. And so we might have to use some targeted grazing. So I try to help, you know, develop a timeline of that. And, and Matthew has my calendar of recommendations for Glenwood. He, he said that he's got it pinned on his desk somewhere. I don't know which is his desk. But um, so you can look for any month, you know, what are we trying to do? Where should the cows be and why? And so um, that's, that's sort of the result of a grazing management plan that I produce. But there are all these other things that are even more complicated, like how do you deal with recreation conflicts? Mm -hmm. Like it's one thing if you have a bunch of, you know, urban, urban people who are not used to seeing cows and they're scared, or maybe they bring in their dog, even they're not supposed to. And... Um, but it's another when it's something more more uh, tricky, like what if they want to have a mountain bike race or something? And, you know, okay, well, let's see. How can we deal with that? Well, you can use the same idea. Like that becomes a special management area. Like, okay, which roads do you want to use for the mountain bike race? And, uh, well, could you just use those roads over there because we could – there's a fence already. We could move all the cows away so that there won't be any collisions and the spectators won't have to, you know, deal with cows wandering around. So you can, in, with timing, you can um, prepare to minimize that, that conflict. And similarly with recreation, another thing is um, mountain bikers want really nice trails. And so... Um, you guys have developed this partnership with this mountain bike group, which seems to be unbelievably good. You know, they'll even build the trails and they have the equipment. <laughs> wow. So, um, but sometimes there are issues like, well, you know, this one section of the mountain bike trail goes through this place that gets muddy every winter and we really don't like it because the mud kicks up on our backs and, you know, that kind of thing. Or the cows get in that mud and then it's, it's uneven and... Okay, let's identify where those areas are and do some kind of hardening of the trail there. And that's what you did at Glenwood. Mm -hmm. And I've done it in a bunch of other properties. You, but it's all about identifying the problem and then trying to figure out a way to, to resolve it so that it's not a conflict. And then you can have, you know, more or less harmony. Um, I love it. In our house, we say better living through pre-planning. <laughs> and that's exactly what I'm hearing here. It's, um, so how do ranchers respond to this kind of methodology? Like, are they 100% on board? Is it a learning curve for them? Are they coming with kind of a background knowledge that this is best practice? Or is this sometimes new? Um, when I started using this concept, the first response I got from ranchers, like at a big workshop or something, you know, was oh, it sounds like you're trying to impose on us, you know, more restrictions. And this is just going to be harder for us to do it. And then as time went on, especially the younger ones, they said, we can do that. And besides, we already learned about this. Flexible use field is a term that I think comes from Cal Poly, you know, which is more oriented around um, livestock production, which is just fine, very important. But um, they recognized that they needed that kind of thing, too. 
you know, where can we temporarily put the cows um, away from the places where, like, you know, in view? Like, I worked on this one ranch where the it was uh, a, a college in Southern California, and the the college president was complaining about, you know, the bare earth that was created by the livestock. Oh, geez. Okay, so there's a special management area. So make sure that that's always nice and green, you know, during the winter. Uh, so um, so I, what I found is that the younger ones are totally into it, whereas their parents, different story especially the fathers and grandfathers, the mothers and grandmothers is, oh, we're just trying to make this work, you know. And so, the, but the young people have been trained and they already know about this. They care about conservation. They, so, um, you know, in time, it's been younger and younger people that I deal with. And so they, one of the happiest days of my life was, um, or I should say my career, was when this rancher said, Larry, you guys keep telling us that there are all these things that we should do, but you're not telling us how to do it. And I realized, oh, okay, I can work with you here. And, they, and so they said, just tell me what you're looking for. And that was a second kind of a revelation, because what am I looking for? Because they know how, most of them, they know how to produce the result that we want to see, like no bare ground, like short grass, um, lots of wildflowers. Oh, you know, so when I talk to them, they say, oh, we can do that. And um, sometimes it's somewhat of a hardship, like maybe they have to leave the cows on the land longer, bring them in earlier, maybe put in a few more um, once in a while. But they, their answer is, I can do that. I wish you had just told me that before because they also want to be part of the planning process they don't want to like uh 20 30 years ago the leading people like me who are guiding grazing management were saying okay well tell tell the rancher exactly how many cattle they're supposed to have out on which days you know or which months and when they have to get them off and to some of the older folks, you know, like my, my baby boomer peers and the agencies, they, that's what they did. And it never worked because the, the rancher was saying, it's not time to pull them off. You know, look, yeah. the grasses are still growing tall. We need to keep the cows out here. And um, so in my grazing plans, I always say what the result is that I want to see. And then I try to work with the rancher to figure out how might that work in the way that they want to do it. Like with cows and calves versus stalkers or some other thing, you know, like, oh, I want to have some longhorns or, you know, I want to use dairy heifers. Okay, let's just figure this out. This is what I want the land to look like in these places. And how can we do it? And they're usually really happy to help because it's going to make their life easier too. Um, let's see. We've jumped around a bit, so I want to... Let's see. Um, okay, so let's do this. We've kind of been talking about this uh, as is. So the Land Trust of Santa Cruz definitely supports utilizing conservation grazing as a land stewardship practice. Mm -hmm. 
um, both for creating species habitats and managing landscapes. Um, so could you talk a bit more about uh, the concept of conservation grazing and the role it plays in, we've talked about the Ohlone tiger beetle, but in um, habitat conservation and why it's so important to integrate that biodiversity um, conservation into grazing management. I think I can answer that. So, a, a lot of times uh, nowadays, people like you, you know, younger generations than me, you just insist, you know, this has to be part of it. You know, that's why I'm part of the land trust. I mean, I, I'm assuming that, that you're going to say that. If, you know, if you weren't like that, if you weren't promoting biodiversity and integration of the community and all these sorts of things into the properties, you'd, you wouldn't be so interested in working here. So um, there's that. And then uh, the younger ranchers, they insist on it too. And like I was saying, you know, they're really concerned about their public image, but they also take a lot of pride in that. And um, but the other side of it is um, it's the right thing to do. And it's in many cases the law. I mean, we're supposed to protect endangered species and federal and state law tells us that maybe we don't like it. I do. But there are a lot of people who don't. And so um, I'm often brought in because the law has translated into um, policy that agencies that have some stake in it, like uh, it's it's not always the case, but when a municipality, you know, wants to change the, the way land is managed or do some development or make some trade or something, they have to get the agencies, either the, you know, usually it's the state Fish and Wildlife Department, but sometimes it's uh, federal um, federal agencies too. Like if there's water involved, it, it, it might include the, the Corps of Engineers or you know some other agencies. Anyway, and they have to give permits, and so you have to do it. And um, often they'll say you have to have a grazing management plan. And, okay, so then they call me, and um, I can. I can help them with that. And so usually your counterparts are really happy to work with me and, you know, because we have shared goals and let's figure this out efficiently so that it's not too expensive. And, um, you know, and then uh, I guess um, those, those are the main reasons um, that, you know, that I usually encounter as a consultant because... I have to get paid as a consultant. I don't have a, a salary from some agency. And so every job has to have some money attached to it. But there's another uh, sort of dimension of, you know, what's driving this. And that is the our not only professional, but our, our society. We, we want to do this. You know, we, we want to look up on the hillsides and see that they're not covered in homes, that they're... You know, that they're not eroding away, even that there aren't farms up there. We want to see something like grazing. We get a lot of pleasure out of it. And we want to drive around and and tell our children and our visitors, you know, like, well, see that grassland over there? It's, it's dominated by these non-native species. Yet there are so many endangered species there that it's considered a hotspot of biodiversity. And, wow, really? 
And uh, so it's just kind of a matter of the evolution of our social interactions, our, our culture. Absolutely. I'm going to take us into a little bit of a hot topic for a second. Okay. Um, I've heard you say words like sustainability, and certainly grazing for biodiversity is key. How does regenerative, the regenerative movement factor into this? Is Do you, when you create a, a grazing plan, take practices like that into account? What are your thoughts on the regenerative movement? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's really hard to define what the movement is. And um, what I hear first when I hear people say, oh, I, I want to do a regenerative yada, you know, farming or garden landscaping or whatever. It's that that's where we've evolved to. It's, it's like regenerative, meaning that we're not destroying, we're not, you know, having impacts, we're doing the opposite. We're sequestering more carbon, we're creating better and more habitat for endangered species, we're controlling pest plants, all these sorts of things. It's regenerative. And uh, so that part I really get, and I'm all in favor of that. And so um, I prefer to think of of the concept of regenerative uh, ranching as more of a political thing. It's, it, it, biodiversity is really a political term too. It's, it represents something that we care about. So um, you've got to have some kind of a term. Because in the case of biodiversity, it was that it used to be that conservation was all focused on fish and game. So that was hunting and fishing and the methodologies that they use. So the, the origins of wildlife biology, wildlife management were all about that, you know hunting and fishing. So along came a group of uh, early early baby boomers, meaning, you know, they were born in the late 40s and later, and they created this brand new discipline called conservation biology. And um, it was very successful, and it still is. But it's not as focused on management. It's more on, you know, how do you how do you create the right size and shape of a reserve? How do various special species respond to that? And, and a whole lot more. It's, it's a really important. And I was one of the original members of that group. And I still really support it. But now I've moved more into management. So I'm, I'm more in line with the resource management discipline. Got the, the applied science the applied. side. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And... Um, so, um, you know, I'm not too worried about it. I'm willing to use that term, but I don't, I don't use it. I mean, in conversation, I'm willing to use it, but I don't use it in, in grazing management plans because it's not specific enough. Mm-hmm. And also some of the things that go along with it are unnecessary baggage that I'd rather not have people misunderstand me. I'd rather get really specific about, you know, what are we trying to achieve and where? And how do we integrate a sustainable grazing program into that? That makes a lot of sense. I mean, sometimes I feel like these terms, they're like an attempt to create a unified understanding and it ends up alienating or obfuscating the the issue. Um, So one thing I've heard a few times that gives me hope is you're talking about young ranchers. Um, I know when I have a good friend of mine whose family uh, has a small ranch up in the Sierra foothills, uh, we're facing is that you know the dad had 
a few sons. None of them wanted to take on ranching. They both were just, all of them were just like, sorry, there's no money. It's too hard. We've seen what you have to go through. Um, and that was something the dad had reflected to me. It was just like, this is so hard. A lot of ranchers up here are seeing their kids go off and not want anything to do with this. And we don't know, you know, we think it's going to stop with us, but I'm hearing that maybe there's, that's not the only perspective. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Well, um, I, th- I think it, it's true. It's, um, if, if young people, and I, and I know a few who have wanted to get into it, and I've actually advised some who've gone on to become uh, successful, and some of them don't have any of their own land. They're just doing the business, and they're figuring out a way to have a, a diverse um, kind of a business, you know, with different enter- enterprises involved. And so that's been really gratifying because sometimes they come up to me and they thank me for advising them, you know, 15 years ago. And so another part of that is um, there are some specialty um, trades, really, that could be involved. For example, building and maintaining stock ponds that have endangered species in them. So somebody's got to have the heavy equipment and the know-how to go in and carefully pull out that sediment without taking out too many of the larvae of, you know, California jagger salamander or something. And um, there's there's that. There's all kinds of other technologies that are related, like it, um, people who uh, work with satellite imagery and they know how to do GIS and they, they love the land as much as anybody else, but they're not, maybe they don't own any or um, more and more what's happening is is somebody will uh, live on at the ranch house and somebody else owns the land that they're looking at. And the, the land surrounding that house has conservation easements on it. So they're able to enjoy some of that aesthetics and, uh, you know, the, the, the joy of, you know, oh, the cows are back, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, so... There's that, but the other thing, like several of the young people that I know, they they actually did come from ranching families, and so they're going to inherit, and so they were able to work that out with their parents, and maybe their parents are continuing to do it, um, and so they're able to have the financial um, support to be able to actually inherit the land and take it over and maybe pass it on too. There, there are some other special programs. I, I forget the name of the agencies. It, it, maybe it's, um, you know, one of the farmer organizations. There, there are many, and I, I apologize to any of the listeners who are, know me and are upset that I'm not remembering their agency. But anyway, they have these young rancher programs trying to match up people who want to be ranchers with people who own rangelands and are going to, give them up at some point and figure out the mechanisms for not only the the transfer of the knowledge and the technology of being a rancher, but also the finances to help make it worthwhile for the landowner to to transfer it to them. And, um, you know, you and I could probably come up with a bunch of really great ideas, maybe cooperatives, you know, maybe groups of young people who they want to do it so they can get together, get the money together and then make it happen. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity for that. And similarly, um, 
some agencies like yours could actually favor that. You could you could let it be known that you're you're looking for some young people who want to figure out a way to to manage these lands, including owning and operating a livestock operation. Um, Matthew and his predecessor, Lynn Overtree, who I also got well acquainted with and really enjoyed, they often would say, Larry, don't you think we should get our own cows? And, and, uh, and I always say, no, don't do it. You're going to regret it because it's so expensive. Instead, <clears throat> find a, a group of young folks or go to one of these agencies and say, look, we're thinking that maybe it would be it would work out, and we'd like to support that because we, we, uh, you know, we like that idea of having you know a cooperative of young folks getting to have this opportunity because it might lead to the long term sustainability of the of the whole thing. You know, like what's it going to be like a hundred years from now? Is Glenwood and Rocks Ranch still going to be there? Are there going to be cows available? Um, it's hard to know, so we have to we have to adapt and be entrepreneurial and something like that. But it's the economics of <coughs> of um, livestock operations hasn't gotten any better, mm-hmm. and it's still volatile. The price goes up and down, and uh, you've got to have some kind of diversification of of the income stream, especially if you want to have a family, and. Um, you know how expensive it is to have kids, and it's just the beginning. You know, medical bills. But what, what, what until what? What are you going to do when they say, "Mom, I want to go to grad school, or I want to go to med school"? And so anyway, um, <clears throat> there are some formulas that are out there. One of them is it seems to require about a thousand mother cows to be able to support one family, if that's the only income stream. And uh, you've got to have about 300 mother cows if you want to support an employee. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there, <clears throat> there's another thing that maybe some clever people at the land trust could be thinking about. How, <clears throat> how could they facilitate that more? And <clears throat> one of the things we've done here, <clears throat> like with Glenwood, is um, not, not with Rocks Ranch. That, that rancher is paying. But the guy at Glenwood, the property is too small. You, you, you couldn't have a thousand mother cows out there. You couldn't even have, you know, 10 Glenwoods to have a thousand mother cows. That, that would be way too complicated and expensive. So anyway, so Matthew has worked really hard to try to make an arrangement with this young guy who has the cows and, you know, how to cooperate, how to talk to each other, what do each other need, because they're, they're coming from different professional cultures. Yeah. And um, uh, it's worked out. So Matthew has an agreement with the guy, and, you know, it's more or less working. There's hard hard things that come up, like, you know, you didn't do what I thought you were going to do. Okay, so that but that all can be worked out, because, you know, when I come to the table, I say... We've got to have those cows out there, so don't piss the other guy off too much. <laughs> <Make it work. laughs> you know? Let's work this out. So, what would you say is the biggest hurdle from either perspective? I guess of the rancher being willing to uh, use these management practices or participate in these management practices, and what is uh, and what is the biggest hurdle from like the uh, 
land trust perspective in in utilizing these conservation grazing practices? Well, the revenue that could be had from a grazing lease is something that the land trust of Santa Cruz has backed off on. And they they recognize that they cannot they're not always going to be able to get that money. So they have to plug that into their budgets. Rocks Ranch is different because it's big. It's really big. And they've got an operator down there who's performing well and, you know, doing what he's asked. And, you know, within the vagaries of weather and all that drive the different conditions. But anyway, um, so um, I think it comes down to um, affordability. I mean, the, the economics economic sustainability is a big part of it. So the land trust has to be prepared to pay and which means, uh, you know, not only do they have to go out and do fundraising, but maybe they have to negotiate with some other partner like at Glenwood, there's the city of Scotts Valley. And so, you know, you got to keep negotiating, you know, now it's costing more. So let's see, the other hurdles are things like, um, a changing uh, recreational public. Like um, mountain bikes caught a lot of us off guard. And, you know, I like riding my mountain bike too, but I, I, don't, I don't speed along on a trail where there's going to be people walking, you know, pedestrians. And so anyway, uh, my colleagues in the agencies have had to try to deal with that. And so have the livestock operators. Here's an example. About, I don't know, 15 years ago, I was working on this one property for a, a big municipality in the North Bay. And they they told me that these mountain bikes were coming in and, you know, they didn't really know what they were. and But they were going really fast and they were going off trail and down steep hills. And then one of them crashed into a cow the cow turned around and jumped off a cliff. And so the cow died. And that's, you know, worth 1000 to $2,000. And at that time, maybe even more now, I don't know. But, um, whoa. So we had, to, we had to really figure that out. You know, what's that going to take? You know, more rangers out there? Or um, the more successful approach has been to uh, work with mountain bike my clubs and the community of people, you know, invite them to come. Let's talk, you know, let's have a, a big barbecue. Um, let's get acquainted, you know. So then you can say things like, well, yeah, don't ride over those mountain, those wildflowers. You know, we're, see over here, there are these wildflowers. They have endangered butterflies that come to them. And, um, oh, we thought you were just uh, trying to control us or limit our freedoms or something, you know, or, and uh, and then similarly, things like um, really simple things like the public is not familiar with a cow-calf operation. They're not. So they see a calf that's over on the side of the field and they think, oh, the mother cow abandoned this thing. I better call the Humane Society or the sheriff or something. And so then there's all this hassle generated, like, no, the, the cow put the calf over there. She's going to come back soon and get it. But it's a safe place. She can keep her eye on it. And um, so a lot of public education would help to resolve this. And I, 
So anyway, I've, I've often offered, you know, that if you'd like to organize some kind of a public meeting near, near Glenwood of the neighbors, I'd be happy to come and talk about these things that you and I are talking about now. Like, what's up with cows? Why do we have to have cows? Why did you switch from horses to cows? You know, what's this endangered species, the Ohlone tiger beetle? I don't even believe it's there. Um, you know, what about these wildflowers? There are these tiny little things that, you know, who cares? And, okay, let's talk about Let me show you. Isn't this cool? You know, and and uh, you can take that even further. And there's, there's this new um, effort among my fellow scientists to incorporate the public. It's called citizen science. And that is, you know, people love to be involved. And now, take Santa Cruz County, we're probably unusual, but, you know, how big is the Native Plant Society in Santa Cruz County? It's huge. And so these are all like expert botanists. And so I I was out at Rocks one time and Matthew or Brian or somebody said, oh yeah, we just had this um, field day. I forget what they called it, but it was... All these botanists came for free, you know, and they were identifying all these rare plants all over. Anyway, what I'm getting at is, <clears throat> I think, <clears throat> excuse me, um, we could take it a step further than just educating people about about grazing and, and actually get them involved. Like um, another thing I've talked with Brian and Matthew about is. Well, what, what if we got people to actually invest in ownership of some cows? And then maybe we could have a, a number or a bell or something. And, and then people could say, that's my cow. I love that. And anyway, those are the kinds of hurdles that I'm encountering now and thinking about for the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, okay. So my next question is, kind of shifting back to thinking more about um, the research being done. And I guess, what what are the emerging new uh, areas for, for research uh, being done by rangeland scientists? Yeah, so um, there are several, I think, that are really exciting. And that, um, you know, maybe there's some way to have some citizen science, you know, involved in it. But one of the most obvious ones is this topic that I was discussing with Brian Margay recently. That is, how can we reduce fire fuels on the whole landscape and into the edges of the community? So um, this involves a new concept that most people don't think about. There, there's been this idea of the WUI, the Wildland Urban Interface, W-U-I. But there's actually a lot of land inside the WUI, and that's called the peri-urban um, landscape. So what I'm getting at is that the landscape is really complicated. There's, there's the peri-urban area. There's even people's backyards that have fuels. I mean, geez, these fires burned into people's backyards, you know, over their fences, caught the wood siding of their houses on fire. But, but there's this peri-urban, like the, the larger places, like undeveloped lots in a neighborhood or um, maybe somebody's big yard because they're lucky enough to be able to have a big, you know, ranchette kind of a place. Then there's the, the interface and then there's the wildland beyond that may, 
be owned by a, a land trust or an you know, park district or something. So fires move through all those zones. So how do we deal with it? We, we need some kind of an integrated approach where we're thinking about all the different dimensions, all the different kinds of vegetation. So forests, shrublands, grasslands, and then the more urban-dominated kinds of vegetation. And um, we also need to think about using all the different tools that are available. And so that means clearing, you know, thinning the forests, you know, but we need to thin the forests, especially in the places where there might be a crazy, disastrous wildfire. Then similarly, we need to um, regularly burn or do some other way to thin out the shrublands, which have a lot of fuel and that are prone to fires. And and then the grasslands, which would burn every single year if they could, if somebody ignited it. So anyway, so my piece, you know, so there's all this stuff. We need people with chainsaws. We need, you know, people with trucks. And so we need to mobilize everybody. But maybe there's a way to create some new professions and to give homeless people some jobs and to give young people meaningful jobs to do this work. And then my piece of it is livestock grazing. So why don't we figure out a way to thin things out, you know, reduce the amount of fuel, and then use grazing in all these places every year because the grasses grow back every year and the shrubs grow back too. So, And I, and I think um, we could have grazing not only out in the preserves and things and the wildlands, but also in the peri-urban zone. So this is just a wild idea, but they're doing this in Europe. So get a bunch of kids who say, yeah, I want to manage the goats or the cows that come into my neighborhood. Okay, great. Here's how you do it. And so everybody has to have a, everybody in the neighborhood has to have a fence with a gate in it to either open, if you want, the goats that are coming in that week. Um, you know, that if your gate is closed, that means no goats. <laughs> Don't let them in. But if the gate's open, then the kids can say, okay, you know, put some goats in there, you know, and let's watch and make sure they don't, you know, nibble on the front door or something. But um, uh, there's that, and and they also could be, you know, it's, it's essentially a fuels management treatment. So um, if you ask somebody like me, I could help figure this out, you know, what what would be the condition of the vegetation that would make the goats only eat the stuff that's going to become fuels. So it would be a certain time of year and, you know, maybe you'd have to put some enclosures around certain things like your roses, you know, but um, we could have more grazing in the urban and the peri-urban zone and then a lot more grazing out in the, in the uh, rural places, you know, like People with ranchettes usually live in these clusters of ranchettes. So what if they could all get together and say, like the Santa Lucia Preserve is a good example of this down in Carmel. Mm -hmm. So the the homeowners own the whole place, but but they have grazing, and they don't want the grazing to get too close to the houses. But maybe they could be convinced that that would be a good idea. And uh, anyway. There are lots of models for this, but Brian Largay and I have been talking about this, you know, how do we, 
how do we even conceive of what might work? And it, it seems to me one of the first things would be to establish a vision. You know, what would this place look like if it had been managed for fuels for the last hundred years? Well, you could extend that and say, what if we go back to indigenous times and how did they, what did it look like when they'd been managing it for thousands of years? Right. I mean, that's one of the things that I feel is often a misconception. People think that the land somehow wasn't stewarded before, and it's it's not the case. These landscapes have been stewarded for thousands of years. With this gap, starting with, you know, colonization mm -hmm. up until now, and that's several hundred years, which is enough time for, you know, you go out and you look at these forests, and it's packed with young trees you know that are less than 100 years old so something changed at some point and the same you know i can see it really well you know i you and i ought to go off on a on a uh, tour I, I did this with brian and your board of directors um last winter or the winter before last anyway you can see what a grassland looks like when it hasn't been grazed in a long time and um, and then you can see a much different grassland that has been grazed every year, even if there are no cows there right then. Mm -hmm. But anyway, we need we need to have we need to be able to give people like me a guidance, you know, some guidance which answers that question that I've been telling you, or I told you that the ranchers keep asking me, you know, what do you want this place to look like? I can do that for you, and. <laughs> Oh, because you know how to use cows. All right, so now let's do it for the whole landscape. And so, of course, there'd be a lot of resistance to that. But I can tell you that uh, apparently the Zayandi-Lompico area used to have goats roaming around that did this job as within the lifetimes of some of the people who still live up there. Whoa, and they're doing this in Europe. And uh, they used to do it in all the royal parks of the UK. And um, so why can't we do it now? Absolutely. We lived in England for a year and um, we were in Cambridge and it was the greenways through where would have cows and students would <laughs> you'd see them cuddled up reading, neck, leaning on one that was by the river. They were very, wow. for better or worse, very human friendly, um, but it was completely integrated. Wow. Like, it was just not even a question. Wow. Um, so, yeah, it, when we came back, that was something my husband and I both reflected on, was just like, why why, why not here? Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things I l love and I've heard as a thread throughout our conversation is bringing people together to solve this problem. And, and, to, and that's something I think that drew me to the land trust, certainly, was that, you know, we bring, we work with uh, folks in the timber industry. We work with uh, ranchers. We work with farmers. You know, we we reckon there's a kind of a recognition that you know humans have needs, and those needs are you know will result in some level of extraction or or man land management in some way. That uh, but that there's a way to do it that is not just sustainable, but beneficial economically, environmentally, to all parties involved, and that can be achieved by bringing everyone to the table. And I just, I love hearing how, yet again, that is a, such an important thing for us to be doing um, when tackling these things. 
Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I think people are demanding that more and more, especially in places like where we live. So I, I hope we can do that. Well, thank you for modeling it for us. I mean, I, Matt Timmer um, told me about uh, the, the text thread between you, the rancher, and him at Glenwood. And I was just like, yes, exactly. Like, why not have message all parties? Like, get everyone, you know, anyways. Yeah. So. L- let me tell you a little anecdote about that. So um, I started to do that before Matthew came on board. And uh, so it was with Lynn Overtree and and the, the rancher. And... Um, it was when this this is back when text messaging, you know, was sort of coming on, you know, like, oh, I guess we could do that. And you can even send a picture. So um, I was I really learned the value of that um, doing it regularly, like Matt and, and his name is Pete um, and Tracy, you know, and I do, you know, sometimes out of nowhere, like, oh, I heard a ping. Oh, wow. It's. It's Pete. Anyway, so uh, this was like six, seven, eight years ago. I was on vacation in Europe with my wife. It was in the middle of the night. And I hear this ping. And so then first I thought, oh, dang, I forgot to turn it off so that it wouldn't ping. And lo and behold, it was our, our livestock operator, Glenwood. And he was asking me the question, is it time to move the cattle out of the beetle pasture? And... Um, and close the gate and lock it. And this was the first time he had ever asked me, let alone on a text in the middle of the night, for me. And I so suddenly I realized, wow, I don't have to like pack up and go home to deal with this or call somebody else. I can just answer his question. So I said, hi, so show me a picture. So he sent me three or four pictures I probably still have them. Anyway, I could see, yeah, it's time. And it had come on faster than I thought. I don't don't even, I can't even uh, remember what time of year it was. But anyway, um, so I wrote back and I said, you know, thank you so much for asking. This is really great because I'm not there. And uh, so, so yeah, go ahead. So what, what are you thinking? And he explained from his point of view, you know, why. And then how he was going to do it, which is there are two gates. And so he was going to have to, you know, get his get his dog out there to push all the cows out one of the gates and then lock it and then run over to the other one and make sure that it was locked. And I thought, this, this is perfect. And this, it took, you know, five minutes. And, and I also, Matt and I have laughed about this, but, you know, in terms of making sure that my time is, is efficient and not having to charge the land trust too much, we realized this is perfect. And so, um, you know, Matt, when he's on vacation, he can get involved in the conversation too. It's usually one or the other. Tracy's really good. She's, I think they've, they've worked out that if, if one's gone, the other one shouldn't be gone. So Tracy often jumps in and says, I'll be out there tomorrow morning. I'll deal with it. But anyway, um, so, uh, the technology is a big part of this too, and and actually Matt and I have discussed, you know, would there be a way to put some cameras up in some of the strategic locations so that I could just, you know, um, 
on a moment's notice, you know, I could just click on the camera somehow and take a look, you know, what's going on. So um, we haven't figured that out yet. And um, but anyway, it would it would make it even more efficient for me to be able to monitor what's what's happening in terms of things like when should the cows be moved out of the beetle pasture? When should they be moved out of another place? Um, and what's the general condition? And then uh, now there's this new technology where you can actually put on a virtual reality headset. And so you could fly the drone. And so conceivably, instead of taking an entire day to do my monitoring, I could zoom in, look there, t do my measurements. You know, it wouldn't be as precise, but go to some other place, take measurements and go, you know, maybe I could do the whole thing in, in an hour or less using a drone. So I don't know of anybody doing that, but I think it's possible in these kinds of rangeland settings where it takes an experienced eye. Um, I could imagine that be, so I don't even know if we have time for this next question. We don't, unfortunately, because the question I have next, of course, is, you know, is this being done in other states? If not, would this, this could theoretically allow you to monitor cross state you don't have to be local to the area to, to right. do this that potential is really great all i'm aware of is um, using satellites mm -hmm. so people are working on these new technologies for getting somewhat precise measures of the kinds of things that that i monitor like rdm which is residual dry matter in the fall and um, it's possible that we're pretty close to that. There's actually some people doing that in different grassland types, not California, that I'm aware of. So a perennial grass system is very different. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't know whether that would work here, and I haven't seen the example like at a, at a conference or workshop, so I don't, I'm not ready to j jump on that technology yet. For sure. But... A lot of it, yeah, the technology um, barrier is sometimes too much. Sometimes you just, I think it, it's like your kids. I mean, you you just kind of have this intuitive sense, you know, why are they crying? Well, it's probably because of this or that. Yeah. And, you know, having a, a photo... Isn't the same. It's not the same. Yeah, it's not the same. So I completely understand. Well, as we wrap up this interview, I guess my last question is just what what is something that you wish our listeners knew about this topic that they probably don't? Well, um, this might sound really simplistic, but I, I would like them to know that people like me um, are really knowledgeable and interested in the whole ecosystem not just in growing more beef. It is really about um, taking care of, learning how to, and actually taking care of through management of, of the land so that it's going to last forever, you know, so that these endangered species will stay or, or get less endangered and that the landscapes that we enjoy looking at and walking in will stay there and that uh, the land trust will be successful and all these kinds of things. And I, I can't tell you how many times people have sort of dismissed my specialty because they think, oh, you, you're, you're just interested in growing cows. And 
yeah, I'm interested in that, but it's, that's not even where my expertise is. So, um, and, and, and related to that, I would love it if uh, members of the public who saw me out there, I'm usually wearing a, you know, one of those construction workers vests. They usually look the other way, you know, just, oh, he's just a worker, you know, but uh, come and ask me some questions. You know, what are you thinking about? I, I love to answer questions and I don't get a chance to do that very often. Awesome. So uh, if our members have any questions after listening to this podcast, yeah. can I uh, direct those questions to you? Sure. Great. Awesome. Yeah. I bet that you could answer a lot of their questions too, but I, I'd be happy to do that and to come back again if you want. Excellent. Yeah. Well, sure. thank you so much, Larry, for joining us. This was fascinating and I would talk to you for another three hours. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you have stuff to get back to. I do. I do. Thanks a lot, Laura. This has been fun. And of course, thank you, Lantrust listeners, for joining us today and for your support. If you have any questions for Larry or myself, feel free to email me at laura.schickman at landtrustsantacruz.org. As always, we are excited to bring you this podcast and look forward to hosting a full lineup of new topics and speakers in the new year. And until next time, happy trails. Happy trails.